welcome to the Unknown Warrior Podcast with Pete and Jason from Squeaky Pedal. This episode, we're kind of diving a bit deeper into the operation behind the Unknown Warrior and kind of the the nuts and bolts, really, of how the how it kind of got back from France and the the pomp and circumstance and the ceremony and how all that kind of interlinked. So we've got author and historian Andrew Richards on the podcast today. So his book, The Flag, the Story of the Reverend David Railton, MC, and the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior, mentions a little bit about the operation itself to recover the bodies and then what happens subsequently so obviously david railson's had this idea it's been passed to the authorities the authorities like it and they want to make this happen so what what are the what are the kind of next steps then andy what what do they decide to do now um once the idea was approved by the prime minister and uh, authority was given by the king a uh, committee was set up and formed by uh, Foreign Secretary Lord Curzon of um, several MPs, including one uh, Winston Churchill. And the real work of the organization uh, began because they had very, very short time to do this and get everything organized. And it's, it's amazing the work was actually that was done. I was able to find minutes of a subcommittee that was actually set up. And the, these are the guys who actually made sure all the, all the nuts and bolts were put in place the details of how and when and why. And it's it's amazing the, the amount of work that was done to put this thing together at such short notice. Um, one of the gentlemen on this subcommittee was a Major General G.D. Jeffries, who was the, he's a Grenadier Guard Major General who commanded 19th Division, which was David Relton's division that he was senior chaplain to. So he knew Jeffries very well. And it's Major General Jeffries and his staff that put basically the ceremonial side of this together once the unknown warrior arrived back in England. And today, really, I think you can look back and see a lot of uh, the ceremonial things you see in London, particularly how remembrance is, uh, remembrance services are carried out at Cenotaph, uh, is based on this format. The orders that he gave out were in such great detail. They had tiny little you know, uh, drawings and plans on and where the station, where in the station were to form up and how long it was going to take to get there. So the, the planning was really, really incredible. And I think um, it goes without saying, you have to mention General Jeffries really as being the driver behind this of, of, of these plans. It's important to note that nothing really quite like this had ever happened before, had it really? And they got, like you say, an incredibly short period of time to, to create all of this. Yeah, absolutely. The the last sort of big ceremonial uh, funeral was for uh, Edward the Seventh in 1910, and that was on no scale anywhere close to the Unknown Warrior. And the fact it went off flawlessly is just it's, it's just incredible. And Lord Curzon has to take huge credit for this. I mean, he was um, he was a Foreign Secretary, and he was known as the great ceremonial organizer. And one of the things you have to say is the way he planned it and who he invited to the Abbey and to be on the procession um, just shows you he was, uh, he, he tried to make it about people and not society. You know, the invites went out to uh, many mothers that lost sons and um, husbands. And, you know, the, ch- the, the cathedral really was packed with very common people. It wasn't a society gathering for sure. You know, there were there were ministers and there were MPs, but there were certainly it was full of people who had lost an awful lot during the war. 
and I think uh, I think this is all down to Lord Curzon. So to so to jump back then to to Sam Paul and as the body the body's been chosen, and then so so how do we end up from there to, to Westminster? What's the what's the kind of next steps that are taken as the body's in Sam Paul? What what happens next after that? You've uh, you mentioned on the previous um, podcast that uh, you know the great secrecy that that took place of this, and basically after the selection the next morning there was a a multi denominational uh, service for the soldier before. Um, he was carried in a in his coffin that was draped with a a flag, a Union Jack, that and the ambulance was taken to Boulogne, where the city of Boulogne came out in force, and the streets were lined, and the body lay in state basically in a chapel ardent, which is a, a privilege given to VIPs, and it was guarded by French soldiers that night. That's right. The French regiment specifically chosen to guard the unknown warrior overnight had been awarded the Legion d'honneur en masse. So they were specifically chosen for that honour because of their own conduct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these were, these were soldiers who had, uh, who had seen a lot of sacrifice, that's for sure. There's a lot of footage of the coffin of the unknown warrior arriving at the quayside in Boulogne in a French wagon. Its honour guard consisted of British and French soldiers and the French general Ferdinand Foch, who was Supreme Allied Commander on the Western Front, gave a very moving speech. Uh, the coffin is then loaded into the waiting British destroyer HMS Verdun, uh, the Verdun being specifically chosen as the vessel that would convey the body of the unknown warrior back to Britain uh, in tribute to the French. Photographs and film footage of the time shows a Union flag draped on top of the coffin. There's a story that a flag that had been carried by the Reverend David Railton, the man who came up with the idea of the unknown warrior, during his time in the trenches was, was used. Uh, but is that actually the case, Andy? At several stages, there are flags used on... The, the coffin and one of the things was David Relton was told was that his flag would be on the coffin of the unknown warrior all the way from St Paul to uh, Westminster Abbey and if you look at the footage you can see them pulling out a flag um, one of the things I found was the orders of the Royal Navy to the captain of uh, HMS Verdun to actually provide a flag so there are many flags that go on and off the coffin and it's David Relton's flag wasn't actually put onto the coffin until it arrived at Waterloo Station. And he, in a letter in, in the early 1950s to Westminster Abbey, um, he was a, a little bit taken aback by this because basically right up until he died, he was told that his flag was actually used all the way. And uh, we now know that not to be true. But we know his flag hangs in Westminster Abbey because it's, uh, it's very unique and it's got several tears on it that we can uh, say that was stitched up by uh, his wife. And it's important, I think, to mention just a little bit about the coffin at the moment that the body was was placed into. This coffin had been specially made for the Unknown Warrior, containing oak from a tree that had been grown in Hampton Court Palace. And it was lined with zinc and basically had ironwork specially added to it, which was created by the Brunswick Ironworks at Carnarvon in Wales. The ironwork still exists there, actually, and they've got a a plate there that they started writing the inscription on and then the inscription was changed so they had to do a new inscription, and that original inscription is still at Carnarvon Castle. But obviously, it just goes to show the kind of the thought that's going into every aspect of this of this operation. Really, it's it's choreography to kind of show connections throughout everything that's going on. Really, isn't it? It is. Um, and, you know, they had no, the people that planned this, the, the committee and the subcommittee, um, Lord Curzon and General Jeffries. Nobody knew the reaction that was going to take place whether it was in France, uh, whether it was uh, Dover, when the HMS Verdun uh, came alongside the quayside there. 
there's uh, descriptions of people um, standing on the cliffs, uh, the white cliffs of Dover. There's, uh, you know, lining lining the railway line all the way up to London, you know, as the coffin uh, is inside a railway carriage and um, is taken up to Victoria Station. There's, you know, each station has got rows and rows of soldiers presenting arms. There are people hanging off bridges. And really the, the descriptions, again, you can read in a lot of the correspondence that wrote about it, it uh, We've never seen anything like this since, in the hundred years since, we really haven't. We get to Victoria and then it lays in, it lays for another night there under, under another guard, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. The Connaught Rangers were actually given the task of being in the railway carriage, which was a, it was a converted uh, luggage car that was used to convey the bodies of Edith Cavell and Captain Fryatt, who were both executed during the war by Germans. So it had, it had great symbolism to it, and it was, it, it was converted. The Connaught Rangers handed over responsibility at Victoria Station to uh, King's Company of the Grenadier Guards, who then, on Platform 8 at Victoria Station, kept vigil all night over the coffin before the procession took place the next morning. And we should say as well that the, uh, the, the Cavell band still exists, doesn't it, Jace? We were there just the other day. It's still, on, still running around. We were indeed, and they have got a fantastic replica of the coffin that the Unknown Warrior uh, still lies in, um, using ironwork from the Brunswick Ironworks, uh, and, a, and a special sword. So the, there was a Crusader sword that was given from the Royal Collection to adorn the top of the coffin, and there's a, a replica sword on top of, on, of that coffin as well. And, and what's surprising is that only until fairly recently the people who owned the the van didn't actually know its significance in the in the story not only the unknown warrior but of Edith Cavell and Captain Fryatt so yeah you can go and see that and I would recommend everybody goes and sees that if they can. So we're at Victoria Station we've we've waited there overnight with the, uh, under guard again and then so how do we then go from uh, Victoria to up the Maryland to the to the final kind of uh, final resting place how does that happen and kind of how do you even start to kind of organize that because as you say the kind of the where do, where do you start with the kind of organizing the, that sheer amount of people you know well i've actually i've looked at the plans um the, the drawings of part of jeffrey's uh, general jeffrey's orders and um i was trying to get my head around uh, how it actually all worked out and laid out on the station there and it's very difficult at, as as you know we were at victoria station last year victoria station was bombed during the second world war and it's changed it's changed a lot um, it's it's quite easy to say that, but they were able to form up between two platforms that morning, and um, the guard of the unknown warrior was handed over from King's Company to a bearer party uh, commanded by a sergeant of the third battalion, the Coldstream Guards, and it's this sergeant that places David Relton's flag upon the coffin. We we now know this that uh, basically the Dean of Westminster said, we don't want this flag, or it might've been General Jeffries. We don't want this flag on all over France and getting lost. So he gave it to a good old Sergeant, the costume guards, and he put it on the coffin. And we know, like I said earlier, it's, it is that flag because of the tears and the rips you can see on it today, hanging in Westminster Abbey. The incredible, the, the huge uh, amount of planning that went into it, you know, came to fruition. You had, you had a band, you had a, a gun carriage on which the coffin was placed. The bearer party, who were uh, soldiers from the uh, Colston Guards, uh, marched behind the gun carriage. And then around the gun carriage, you had pallbearers. Now, it's interesting to know the difference. Pallbearers were 
senior, senior, the senior officers who were uh, serving at the time, and amongst them was uh, Admiral of the Fleet Earl Beatty, Sir Henry Wilson, and of course, Lord Haig. And they escorted and marched all the way to the Cenotaph and then to Westminster Abbey alongside. And there were marching parties behind the carriage that came from all services, from the Navy, from the Army. And behind those were, I believe it's 400 ex-servicemen. A lot of these men were, had limbs missing. They were on crutches and they managed to follow behind and they formed up. And they came out of, I believe it's Eccleston Bridge Road, I think, uh, to Hyde Park Corner, down the Mall, through Admiralty Arch and along Whitehall to where the Cenotaph was adorned with two huge Union Jacks. And it was um, the Cenotaph, the new Cenotaph, was unveiled by the King before there was the uh, two-minute silence. And yeah, it's important to note that the previous Cenotaph had been a temporary structure that was erected in 1919, hadn't it? It was made of, of wood and plaster. And then there was a campaign. They didn't really expect it to be a permanent thing. And then all of a sudden there was a campaign to, to keep it, really, wasn't there? Yeah, there, there, there was. I mean, it, uh, I think it shocked everybody, the fact that they made it from wood and plaster, and, and then, you know, several months later, it started to fall apart. I, I do believe that uh, they, they didn't understand the outpouring. And it, it, it's just incredible. And I, uh, I mentioned in my uh, talk that I gave last year, I found a 19, uh, first colour footage of London in 1924 um, by a French film crew. Uh, and I can tell from the trees that it was springtime. And when they went down Whitehall, the, photogra- the, 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 the footage of... The cenotaph it was still covered in flowers fresh flowers and with women and children standing there and it was a pilgrimage that thousands went every day to the cenotaph and then to the tomb of the unknown warrior and this was in 1924 and this wasn't around the time of armistice day this was in it must have been may or june time in london and it was it was just incredible it came an absolute focal point and one of the newspapers described it as the ground on which the cenotaph lie was consecrated by the tears of many mothers or you know i'm paraphrasing again but there was no way that they could not put anything there and uh i think uh, you know the second cenotaph and having stood there many times myself it, it is an incredible uh, memorial and you see on the footage the the king places a wreath onto the coffin of the unknown warrior that was of bay leaves entwined with red roses um, and what again is fascinating is that you can watch that happen on the on the footage on the newsreel footage as the new cenotaph is unveiled so then it proceeds through to westminster abbey to be laid to rest in a in a, in a very impressive ceremony you pre- just previously mentioned yeah absolutely um you know and lord curzon as i said before had made sure that the the abbey was not going to be full of you know uh, high society it was it was full of people who had lost an awful lot during the war and i think that added to the descriptions from times correspondent that you know you could cut the atmosphere with a knife and and it was it was absolutely so moving you know i i don't i you know it's often said (laughs) as british we certainly do ceremonial the best of anybody in the world and i think i would you know I like to think that we really do. And I think a lot of that comes from the way this service and the way this ceremony was conducted in November 1920. Yeah, I think, as you say, you see some of the 
planning documents and the kind of you know the the minutes behind it and it's just precision isn't it it's it's difficult to fathom as to the sheer manpower and the brain power going into you know making sure that everyone is exactly where they're supposed to be at exactly the right time it's it It is absolutely incredible one of the things i found on the film and uh, i got some help from a friend of mine ex-garrison sergeant major billy mott of the welsh guards i i had to call him and say why are on the you know why because soldiers know that when you turn around ceremonially you always turn around to the right and i didn't understand why the band were going up to the cenotaph and turning to the left and that's actually called counter marching and um i i the years i was in the in in the guards uh in the lifeguards uh, i didn't actually understand the band actually turned to the left and it's because of their musical instruments and so they actually allowed for the band to do this. And it was, it's just, it, you know, the precision that is involved in this and, and down to the detail, you know, it's really quite incredible. It's quite interesting as well. I read somewhere that permissions were given for the recording of the service, but only two hymns were of good enough quality to be included on the record. And these were some of the first electrical recordings ever sold to the British public. And there's a very, a very grainy recording of one of the hymns on the Imperial War Museum website that you can listen to which kind of shows as well, like you say, that people wanted a piece of this as well to, to keep as a memento, you know, to be part of, of this ceremony. Yeah, you, you only have to look at the numbers that, uh, that were there in London and stayed in London and then came to London in the, in the subsequent days afterwards. The photograph of the, the slab, the temporary slab that was put upon the Unknown Warrior of York, it's called a York slab, I believe, white um, granite. And uh, it's very simple. It's very moving and the flag is there at the foot of it and it stay, remains there for a year. The amount of people that went past, I mean, I, you know, I've had all sorts of estimates and people, it was, in, it was in the millions. It really was. And I think it continued all through that year. It is incredible to think. I mean, you've got the fact that the body is laid to rest in French soil that's been specifically brought back across um, 100 sandbags of French soil. And then as you've alluded to, the, the, the original stone, the York stone that was put on there was replaced by a black Belgian marble stone just a year later on the 11th of November 1921. Dean Ryle again was instrumental in the composition of the inscription and that is the stone that we are all familiar with today that, that's, that's on the, 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 the tomb of the Unknown Warrior now. It's strikingly beautiful, it really is. I mean, just, just um, I can remember looking at it from an angle, even amongst the, you know, the amount of public you get in there now. I've never been able to stand there alone. I've had to go in through the the public with everybody else but um it, it's just striking it really is the simplistic beauty of it is it just makes it you know endearing to the to the nation and there's a little poignant thing that i was going to mention as well the fact that elizabeth bowes lyon when she married the future king george the sixth in 1923 she laid her bouquet at the tomb as a tribute to her brother who died at the battle of Lewes, and that created a a tradition that was observed right up to today where royal brides would lay their bouquets onto the body of the unknown warrior. Yeah, it's a fantastic tradition. I, I truly believe it actually came about as an accident, I think. Uh, when she was going into Westminster Abbey through the, uh, the door, she, there, a, a member of clergy fainted. And so the procession was held up there. And I think I, whether she planned it or not, I, I really don't know. But it came to her at that time. I think she she looked up, she saw the flag, she looked down, and she just did it. I think it, I think it was on the spur of the moment. I don't think it was planned at all. I might be wrong. I've never come across any writings or anybody that's been able to say otherwise. But I, I think it really was on the spur of the moment, and it's, it's 
truly inspiring. I mean, it really is. And her, you know, on her death, a wreath was laid of her flowers from her funeral onto the grave of the unknown warrior. Yeah, and it just shows the fact that they still do that, the fact that that has entered into rural tradition is just a nice demonstration of, of I think, how everybody across the land at that time, like her own brother being killed, was, was felt the sorrow and the need to connect with this tomb in the same way that ordinary people had as well. And obviously it's become a national symbol throughout time copied and and mirrored across the globe at the time she she didn't know they hadn't found his body fergus they hadn't found her brother's body now they they uh they have found a body that they think is him and they buried at lou and he's there there is a, a marker to him but you know for all she knew it could have been her brother and this is the the beauty of it is that everybody could think that this was their brother the son their husband and that's the incredible the power of this of this symbol and speaking personally to yourself it's now 100 years on from the commemoration of of the unknown warrior do you still feel it plays a really important role in in the commemoration of of all conflicts now not just the first world war but right up to the present day i think it does it, it for me personally it holds great symbolic meaning you know i have friends that have died both in combat and since then. And it's often, it's around this time of year. It can be very painful for a lot of ex-servicemen around this time of year, but it's also very cathartic too. And um, I've caught myself standing several occasions when I've been visiting back doing research back to the UK, standing at the Cenotaph and it's powerful. And then you go down to Westminster Abbey and it's, I think it's sometimes they're going to have to, Westminster Abbey authorities and have to open up to the public and allow people to pay homage at the grave of the unknown warrior i know that you can go into westminster abbey for church services without paying the admission but i think it's i really would like to see it opened up certain times of the year to the public i think the fact it is behind closed doors so to speak is a hindrance to that and i think the public being given certain days that they can go and pay their respects to the unknown warrior would be would be a great thing yeah and especially in times of, of covid as well and where we're not able to gather as we would normally in the numbers that we would normally to pay our respects i think it would be uh, yeah important that people are able to go and visit that but thank you very much andy for your contribution there and for talking us through the uh, the quite elaborate and complex operation and yeah we hope to speak to you soon thanks very much for coming on the podcast oh, you're most welcome thank you for the invite thank you